But let me read to you First uh, Samuel two. I mean seven, two through um, I think four. I'll read to verse four. From the day that the ark remained at Kiriath Jerim, the time was long, for it was twenty years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, if you, are, if you return to the Lord with all your heart, remove the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your hearts to the Lord, and serve him alone, and he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So the sons of Israel removed the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord alone." This is the word of the Lord. Now, um, have you ever realized, I think all of you have, okay? I'm a little bit, I can be a little bit free. I don't, ha- I don't have a whole bunch of people to worry about. But have you, um, have you ever realized that God doesn't go away? So, like it or not, God just keeps coming around. Man, I tell you folks, I could talk about this for a long time. <laughs> There's a story about a guy named Wilbur McLean. I don't know if you've heard of Wilbur McLean. Wilbur McLean was a retired major in the Virginia military in the Civil War when it broke out. The Civil War broke out. It was the first battle of Bull Run, and it happened in his front yard. And so that night he was preparing to eat, and a cannonball landed in his fireplace. His dinner was destroyed. And wanting to get away from all the battle that was going around during the 1860s to 1862-63, he decided to move 120 miles to the south. And in his mind, he had gotten away from the war, from Civil War. He moved to Appomattox Courthouse. (laughs) Two years later, on April the 9th, in 1865, the Civil War came to McLean's house, his front door again. He had moved there and... Uh, he was being requested by the military that they allow he, them to use his home for Lee to surrender to Grant uh, on that historic day. And so this is what is recorded that he said. <laughs> the war began in my front yard and the war ended in my front parlor. And so you see that McLean, he tried to get away from the war, but the war followed him around. And God just kind of follows us around. Just the same way the Civil War followed Wilbur McLean around. You know, Jonah, we studied Jonah back back at the very beginning when I first got here. And we said, Jonah, he told God he wasn't going to do what God wanted him to do. And he left and walked away from God. Well, God kept coming after him. And it's very interesting. Jonah, he's not a person who could say, well, you know, I don't understand everything there is to know about God, so I'm just not going to have anything to do with God. Jonah knew exactly what God wanted him to do, and he just didn't want to do it. So he walked away from God, and God kept following after him. Uh, Most of the time, it's not what we don't understand that bothers us. It's what we do understand that bothers us. And so life just has a way, as we think about this, of happening, and God always continues to be there. God came to Jonah in that ship, in the hold of that ship. Like it or not, God continues to show up. There's accidents and tragedies and disappointments, and there's funerals and there's losses. And by the way, there are, let's don't forget, there are good times too. And God shows up in those good times. 
Well, let's take this this uh, statement I made. I, I'm done with God. You know, let's let's amplify it. Let's change it just a little bit. Let's say I'm never going to have anything to do with God again. I'm never going to have anything to do with those people in that church again. But then there's an accident. <laughs> there's an accident, or there's a death, and then you have to go to the funeral, or you have to sit with the preacher at the preacher's office and plan a funeral. And there you are dealing with, and I used to say a black book, but now you can say a slide book. And you're dealing with the minister who has to talk about this book. And you're having to plan a funeral, and it's going to have to have somebody's name in it. It's going to have to have God in it. And those people that you didn't want to be around, well, there they are again. We just can't seem to get away from God. Let's just say you're going to get away from God and not have anything else to do with God. You change the channels on the radio. And you're somebody reading Psalm 23. Or maybe you're in the gym and you're saying, I'm not going to have anything to do with God. And somebody says grace while they're singing a song. Amazing grace or the Lord's Prayer. Or maybe a good thing happens and you're not supposed to say anything about God, but you say, thank God. <laughs> and you catch yourself. Well, you just can't get away from God. In our text, did you notice what it said there? Let me get my glasses. Look back at what it says there in verse two. From the day that the from the day that the ark remained in Kiriath Jerim, the time was long. It was twenty years. We have just turned from chapter six to chapter seven. Twenty years have gone by. Twenty years. It's been twenty years. Remember chapter four, the the battle between the Philistines and Israel. Four thousand died. Then they say, hey, look, we need to take the ark of God into the battle and we'll win. So go get Hophni and Phinehas, bring the ark in the battle. And 30,000 guys died because God says, you're not going to manipulate me. And so then the Philistines take the ark into their possession. And the first day, the, the ark there is before Dagon. Dagon falls on his face. The next day, Dagon falls down and his head's cut off. His hands, palms of his hands are cut off. And so now they're realizing they're up, uh, up the creek. It's the, this God has them. It's not they having him. And so they begin to figure out that they better get rid of this God because now they have tumors, they have hemorrhoids, they have mice running through their land, and their God is being devastated as well. And so they put this uh, ark of God on a, ox, on a new cart pulled by two cows. Remember, they were separated from their calves, and they didn't go to their calves. They went straight to Beth Shemesh. And when they get to Beth Shemesh, several things happen. Remember we said that there were many people who received it with great joy and they worshiped God and they killed the cows and they offered sacrifices. But then there's two thoughts there. Either men received it with indifference or men received it and made it a tourist attraction and those 70 of those guys died so they had to get rid of it now. They have to get rid of it again. And now the ark of God has been uh, taken to Kiriath Jerim where a man named Eliezer has been guarding it for these 20 years. What's been going on for 20 years? Y'all remember that guy we left uh, in chapter 4? There was a guy we left uh, in chapter 4. I'm going to go back and look him up here real quick. Chapter 4, verse 1. We hadn't talked about this guy since chapter 4. Thus the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Samuel's alive. Samuel, this son, this little boy that was born to Elkanah and Hannah, this little boy has grown up. This little boy has been trained by Eli. We all forgot about him, and all this stuff has been put in place. Twenty years have been going by, but this little boy is still alive, and he's preaching. And all Israel, 
or lamenting. Some of our translations say sorrowing and seeking after. This says lamenting after. Some say sorrowing and seeking after the Lord. And they're seeking and they're sorrowing after the Lord because there's a little boy preaching. And his preaching is having an effect. And so tonight, the sermon, the title is, What Did This Prophet Preach? What Did Samuel Preach? In verse 3, it tells us, he says, If you return to the Lord with all your heart. What's that? Doesn't that sound like some, something that Jesus preached in 4.17, Matthew 4.17, and what John the Baptist preached in chapter 3 of Matthew? What did those boys preach? They said, Repent. He says, if you return, if you turn about face, so he's preaching repentance. This was the original itinerating preacher. This man is going all through Israel and he's preaching in all these towns. And he's preaching repent and his ministry is having an effect. It brought about an emotional response. Look at verse 2. It tells us that all the house of Israel is lamenting. So, the big, so that's a great place to start. Tears is a great place to start. But is this sorrow and is this seeking, is it godly sorrow or is it worldly sorrow? 2 Corinthians 7.10 talks about two kinds of sorrow, worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. Worldly sorrows are full of great emotions. Worldly sorrows are truly you know, when you break a rule and you get caught, that's some, you, you're, there's some real emotion there. But the question is, is it worldly in the sense that uh, you're just upset about the consequences? I mean, it hurts to lose a privilege. You get your phone taken away and you're 15 years old, it hurts, right? If you are a student in the college and you get caught doing something that breaks the ethics code, and you're removed, man, I, I can't imagine anybody doing this today. I remember when I was in 2000, one of the, my clients looked at me and said, my son just told me somebody at Washington Lee got removed from college. And I said, why? They said, because he found out, they found out he plagiarized and he was taken off the campus. Can you imagine them doing that today? But it hurts. And there's, there's this loss, there's embarrassment, there's losing face uh, over consequences when we break rules. But worldly sorrow does not bring life. It brings death. It's all about me and it's not about offending God. There's all kinds of illustrations in the Bible about worldly sorrow. Our text in 1 Samuel chapter 6, remember what were the Philistines sorrowing about? What did they do? They wanted to appease God. We, saw, we talked about that last week. They wanted to appease God. They appeased Him with golden rats and golden tumors. And they did all this stuff that cost a lot of money. But they just wanted to get rid of Him. That's worldly sorrow. They wanted to get rid of God, get rid of the consequences. I, used to, I, I took it out of the sermon because it would make the sermon too long. But you can look it up and you can read through uh, Exodus how many times, look this up, how many times did Pharaoh say, I have sinned against the Lord? Over and over and over, but he never repented. How many times did King Saul say, I have sinned against the Lord and I've sinned against David? Over and over and over, and yet he never really stopped fighting God. We could look at Judas and he's regretting that he betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver and there's all this remorse, but we don't find him repenting back to Jesus Christ like Peter find him going out and ending his life at the hanging tree. 
It's good to be sorry for our sins. It's good to, to take notice of terrible consequences, but it's got to go further, further than just lamenting this worldly sorrow. So what, what Samuel calls for is concrete response, not just emotional. He calls for something concrete. And I want to give you, I think, five things here that, that will help us to understand how concrete what he's calling for. In verse 3, he says, If you return to the Lord... To the Lord with all your heart. Remove the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your hearts to the Lord and serve Him alone. This is exclusive concrete evidence. I want you to turn to Him exclusively. This is first commandment stuff. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And we see this in the Bible. In Genesis 35, 2 through 4, this is what Jacob says to his household. Get rid of the foreign gods you have with you and purify yourselves and change your clothes. Then come, let us go to Bethel, where I, where I will build an altar to God who answered me in the day of my distress and who, had been, who has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods they had and the rings in their ears, and Jacob buried them under the oak at Shechem. All of us know what Joshua says in Joshua 24, 14, and 15. This is right before he died. He says this to all the 12 tribes of Israel. Fear the Lord and serve Him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your forefathers the ones they serve beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are now living. But as for me and my house, everybody said, we will serve the Lord. Samuel's not saying anything new. He's reasserting the first commandment. He's reasserting the second commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Sorry, I memorized it all in the King James. Um, it's good. This is concrete response, exclusivity. And the second thing is, I, there, it's, it's hard to say these, maybe, maybe there's a little difference. All or nothing, <laughs> exclusive, no other God, all or nothing, all or nothing. Now, Ben and anybody who's done any performance-oriented stuff, you know, you know what people who perform say? You know what they say? You've got to leave it all in the, you can't leave anything in the tank. It's all or nothing. We used to tell the guys when they worked out on the football field, we'd say, look, go home exhausted. Go home and let those meals replenish all that, all that energy you burned off. Let all those meals fill you back up. Don't leave anything in the tank. It's all or nothing. I'm going to give you, coach, everything that I have, total allegiance. And that's what we're talking about here. It's not okay to serve other gods and me, Samuel is saying. It's me or them. And there's nothing new under the sun. You know the gods and goddesses of Samuel's day? They weren't picky like the Lord. You could go and serve the corn god. Dagon is the corn god. And you could go serve Baal. And you could go serve Ashtaroth. And they wouldn't mind if you bowed down a little bit longer to this one than that one. They wouldn't mind. They're not, they're not upset about stuff like that. But just go out and say there's only one god, even in those days. And you will not say it without serious consequences. If you go out and say you must serve the Lord God of the Bible alone or be lost forever, you better get ready. That's the unpardonable sin of our day. You'll be ridiculed. You'll be persecuted. You'll pay for saying that. 
But as we said earlier, um, we all think about God whether we want to or not. All of us are theologians. Some people say, no, Mark, I'm not a theologian. And I want to say, yeah, everybody's a theologian. Some are trained in school. Some are not trained. But all of us talk about God. Isn't it interesting? Last week, I think Betty Jean brought it up to me about a, a man who wrote an article about how we should get rid of our thoughts about God. Well, he what, what was he talking about? We all have... We all have a the we're all theologians. We all have to talk about God. <laughs> and some of us talk well and right about God, and some of us don't. We have to get this thing right, or we will be cursed forever. And so if you stand and you say, This is the one true and living God, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. If you say that, if people come against you, and if people speak against you, let them. And you need to make sure that you don't go into how did I write this? Com com combat mode. Have you ever gone into combat mode? <laughs> One of my friends told me that he used to argue with people. One day he told me he argued with somebody. If I told you who this was, you'd know who this is. He told me he argued with somebody till 4 o'clock on Sunday morning and got up ready to preach at 10 o'clock and, and went and preached at 10 o'clock. He argued to the death to win the conversation with somebody. He was in combat mode. And he said God convicted him about it. Now we need to hold to the truth. And everybody in here knows we need to hold to the truth. But we need to make sure we do it in love. We made All of us have made probably many mistakes where we have been a little too harsh with what we believe. We learn from our mistakes, and then what do we do? We go back and we love people, and we love people, and we love the people we train and we work with, and we keep caring for them. And when they have a loss in the family, we go and we, we send them a card, or we talk to them, or we bring them a meal, or we do things to stay in their lives and to keep bringing them the love of God. One true and living God is the only God in the world who's a jealous God. He will not, he will not, he will not allow us to cuddle up with other gods. There was a first century Jew who came on the scene and he came on the scene and he says in Matthew four seventeen, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Later on in Matthew chapter 10, verses 37 through 38, that same first century Jew said this, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. That's Jesus. He's the first century Jew. He's saying what Moses wrote in Exodus 20. He's saying what Samuel said in 1 Samuel 7. And here we are with Jesus saying exactly the same thing. Obey the first commandment. That's for you. That's for me. You and I, we cannot serve two masters. We will either love the one and hate the other, or we will hold to the one and we will despise the other. You and I must worship God exclusively and all or nothing. Third, constant. This concrete response must be constant. Do you all know the first thesis of the 95 theses that Matthew Luther penned on the door that day in Wittenberg? The first one is repentance for, is for all of life. I don't know if I'm quoting it exactly. I just know that's what it is. Repentance is how long? All of life. <laughs> every day, every year, all the rest of your life. It's repenting and keeping on repenting. It's not tears one day, one moment. It's one time event. No, it's all, the t all of life. 
It's not once and done. It's not praying a prayer and saying, oh, no more dealing with having to turn away from sin. I'm already turned to God and it's all over. It's constant turning away from sin and constant turning to Jesus Christ. Our children's small catechism defines a Christian like this. It says a Christian is someone who repents of their sins, believes in Christ, and leads a holy life. Think about that. Let's just think about that. Repents and keeps on repenting. Believes and keeps on believing in Jesus Christ. Leads a holy life and keeps on leading a holy life. This is what it is. It's constant. It's constant repenting. First Thessalonians 1.9 says, Paul is talking about the repentance of the Thessalonians. And he says, How you turned from idols to God to serve a living and true God who gave Jesus Christ to die on the cross and you're waiting for His return who delivers you from the wrath to come. It's constant. Well, fourth, it's difficult. This concrete response is also difficult. Look what he says there. If you return to the Lord with all your heart, and here's the difficult part. Remove the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from you. What does that, why is that difficult? Why is idolatrous worship difficult? Well, let me try to get the point across in a quick way. Idolatrous worship is powerful because Baal is the male part in this equation and Ashtaroth is the female part in this equation. They come together in this magical union and as they come together they promise fruitfulness on all the land for all the people. Do you want, your fruit? Do you want fruitfulness and you want your land to bear much fruit? Then you have to enter into this worship and so much of this worship is infused with all kinds of sexual practices. The men and the women would be giving themselves up in immorality. Do you want your crops to grow? you want a guarantee for your crops to grow? This was the pressure. This was the power of it all. And so no superficial repentance would be necessary. Something supernatural would be necessary. Here are men and women giving their hearts and their minds and their bodies to this worship. It was addictive worship. One of the things we talked about in our men's group was how powerful sin is, how powerful things are, how, how they just hold us in power. If you think sin is not a power, then just go try to stop it. Just go try to stop it. Uh, one man wrote, you may think that it is not until you try to dislodge it from yourself. Jesus said everyone who sins is a slave of sin. So you and I, we need something more powerful than ourselves to set us free from our sins. Do I have a place in my life where sin is overpowering me? Do I have a place in my life, in my thought life, or in my, um, my mouth, how I speak to others, or how I act? Is, is there any place where sin is overpowering me? And I say that to people... Here, everybody in here knows the gospel a hundred times over. Selah's heard the gospel as many times as so many people. But we all need to know that even as Christians, some sin could overpower us and overmaster us. And so even as Christians, we need to know that repentance is also, in, in that is, is a necessary aspect of it, is grace. I love this. <laughs> it's gracious. This concrete response has to have that supernatural part, which is grace. 
the word, this exclusivity that's commanded and this all or nothing response that's commanded and the constancy that's demanded, the difficulty which we must overcome. You and I can't overcome it in and of ourselves. None of this can happen apart from God's gracious provision, the power to do what's required. That's what Augustine said, God, give to me what you require. I love that. Isn't that a great statement? Give to me what you require. You and I, we are not going to be able to turn from any idols except by God's grace. If you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, turn to Christ. And if you do know the Lord Jesus Christ, keep turning to Christ. And the only way you can do it is because He is the one who gives you the power to do it. He's the one who can supply you all that you need. And that's the glory of the gospel. God lays this condition on you and then God enables you to fulfill it, to meet it. You and I have responsibilities and we must meet our responsibilities And tonight, if all you can do is think about how hard it is, if all you can do is think about how addictive sin might be, if all you can do is look at it, then you have forgotten to look at the person who can take and set you free from it. He will give you what you need. The lost person needs grace to repent and keep on repenting. And you and I as Christians, we need grace to continue all the way to glory. Because we will be turning from all sin and putting our eyes on Jesus. Folks, listen, I'll end this way. How many times throughout all these years have we heard, and I say sermons, maybe I should say talks, self-help talks, from the pulpit? One of the girls came to me in here one day and she said, you know, I'm really glad that you preach the way you preach. And I said, what do you mean? She said, you haven't told us how to do anything. You just keep bringing us to Christ. And I hope I keep doing that. Go to Christ, okay? Uh, I, I like outlines. I'm going to give you outlines, but I want you to go not to self-helps and not to how-tos and not what-to-dos and all this success that you get apart from Christ. It's success only because of Christ. So you and I, we must come to the Lord Jesus Christ and seek Him. The way up is the way down. The way up is the way of humbling myself and repenting and looking to God who gives me Jesus Christ, who saves me from the wrath to come. So this is glory to God. Let's pray and we'll end our worship. Father, we thank you for uh, the preaching of this little man who grew up to be a bigger man and who began to go around preaching the glory of God and repentance of sins to the people of Israel. And Lord, we praise you for... um, Moses who taught it, we praise you for Samuel who preached it, and we praise you for Jesus who came and preached it and then went and fulfilled it all, dying on the cross for our sins, that he might grant to us all that we need. As we heard this morning, we have peace with you because of the body that was broken, the side that was pierced, the head that was crowned with thorns. We praise you for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask, Lord, as we walk out of this place tonight, Help us to sing and finish up. Help us to walk away glad to be in your presence. Help us to walk away reminding ourselves always that we're saints who are in Christ Jesus living in southwest Houston. Use us in our homes. Use us in this church. Help us to partner together with Jesus Christ and live for him this whole week. Help us to be those who love others all around us. 
and invite others to come to worship here with your people. We thank you for this opportunity. We pray that we would um, use our hearts and our lives all week for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.